This is a message from Leading the Way with Dr. Michael Youssef. We pray that it will encourage you in your walk of faith. If you would like to learn more about Dr. Youssef or Leading the Way, please visit ltw.org. Words like faith or love are used to mean all sorts of things other than what they intended to mean. Some use the word faith as having confidence in yourself. Have faith in yourself. Others use faith to mean just having a blind faith. Yet others think faith means just being gullible and trusting and believing everything. And yet, the Scripture makes it very clear. The definition of faith is very clear. And it is simply this. Having a complete trust and absolute confidence in God and His promises. That's what faith means. The Bible speaks about three kinds of faith, not in a systematic way, but you see them in different contexts. The Bible speaks about saving faith. Saving faith comes when an individual comes to the realization that he or she is a sinner and heading straight for a Christless eternity without Jesus Christ being the only Savior and Lord of your life. That's the saving faith. It's trusting and absolutely believing in the promise of the Lord Jesus Christ when He said, whoever comes to me and believe in me shall never die. That moment, a person is transformed from death to life, from darkness to light, from hell to heaven. Then the Bible speaks about daily faith, living faith, everyday faith, moment-by-moment faith. Now, obviously, there is an order of this, that you have to have saving faith before you can really experience daily faith. The first step is to have a saving faith. After you experience saving faith, the Holy Spirit is going to come and dwell in you. And He is the one who's going to empower you to have daily faith, to face the difficult circumstances of life, to trust in the promise of God that regardless of how tough things may get, that He's with you, trusting in Him to work through the circumstances, trusting Him and obeying His Word, that you're going to receive a blessing sooner or later, trusting in Him that no matter what befalls you in life, uh, He's working His purposes out. He'll never leave you nor forsake you. And the list goes on and on. The third faith the Bible talks about is that faith in eternity, that it's the moment I close my eyes in death. I know as I know I'm standing here before you that I will be in the presence of Jesus. Not possibly or maybe when I'm not sure. Absolutely. That is the faith, the third kind of faith. Now, the problem arises when somebody comes and claims that they have faith, and yet all of their life they exhibit no evidence of this faith. I mean, everybody claims everything these days. I mean, it's amazing what people claim. Just having faith in faith. But anyone who claims to have faith, saving faith, must prove it day by day in living faith. Now, there are people who have no time for God. (laughs) No time for Him. But they think because they do some good things, 
God under obligation is going to let them into heaven. No. That's what you call living in a fool's paradise. And millions of people are living in fool's paradise. And that is why today I'm commencing a series of messages on the 12 evidence of faith. 12 evidence of faith from the book of James. Through the years, many people have misunderstood the epistle of James. They really have. Historically, if you read how people viewed it, you'll be surprised. For example, Martin Luther, have you heard of him? He was a Dominican monk who believed, of course, in works. He's going to get to God by trying harder, by being a religious person, by going to confession and doing this and doing the other thing. And then God opened his eyes and he read from the epistle to the Romans that salvation is by faith alone in Jesus Christ alone. And all of a sudden he becomes converted to Christ and gets out of religion into faith in Jesus Christ. And so in the early days, after he got converted, he was seeing everything through the eyes, faith, faith alone, faith alone. He reads the epistle of James, and he misunderstands it. And he thinks that it's teaching that salvation is by works. And so he gets mad and tosses the, the James out, and he calls it epistle of straw. But then as he grew in the faith, as he began to really study the Scripture, remember he was into religion, never really studied the Scripture, And as he began to study the Scripture and really began to understand the epistle of James and what James was trying to say, he called it the good book. The good book. Anyone, anyone who is serious-minded about studying the epistle of James can only conclude that James affirms what the Bible affirms. What is that? That salvation is through faith in Jesus Christ alone. And that's when genuine faith takes place. But in order to prove that faith has taken place, there's got to be some evidence, right? Now, remember this. Before I get to the epistle and before I get to that first evidence, that James was raised in the same house, in the same home that Jesus was raised in. He was half-brother of Jesus. Now, you got to understand this. (laughs) He grew up in the same house. He was half-brother. In fact, Matthew chapter 13, verse 55 tells us that after the blessed virgin delivered Jesus, virgin-born by the will of God supernaturally, not by the will of man or an interference of man, after that, Joseph and Mary had children, a bunch of them. Four of them are mentioned by name, James, Joseph, Simon, and Jude. Two of them wrote epistles, James and Jude. In fact, John chapter 7, verse 3, 4, and 5 tells us that these half-brothers of Jesus did not believe in Him. In fact, they mocked His ministry. They didn't believe in Him until that earth-shattering event of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the grave that turned their hearts around, that they became so enamored with the fact that their half-brother is no other than the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, so much so that they wouldn't even refer to themselves as half-brothers of Jesus. Both of them, James and Jude, refer to themselves as slaves of Jesus when they're writing their epistles. Amazing. Amazing. And so they did not only believe in Jesus after the resurrection, they died martyr's death for Jesus. Both James and Jude were honored to call themselves slaves of Jesus. Now, I want you to just imagine growing up in a home 
where your older brother is Jesus. Just think about this. Because you really will not understand neither Jude nor James, those two epistles particularly, more than any of the others, until you understand this. I know firsthand what it means to be the runt of the litter. <laughs> when your older brothers at 19 years older and 17 years older, very successful, and they're recognized in the whole town for their virtue. By contrast, you are the rebel. You, the rebel Yusuf kid. And my rebellion is remembered by everyone in my hometown. I mean, they'll never forget it. I become a believer in Jesus Christ. My life was transformed before their eyes. I go back and I preach to thousands of people, <laughs> even in my hometown. There's still that rebellious Yusuf boy. <laughs> I'll never forget, 1982 was my first time to do a preaching mission in my hometown. And I was preaching to lots of people, and, and my family were with me at the time, and, and, and people were lining up. To say, you know, thank you for the message. People did not know me. It's been many years. And, and this sweet lady, God bless her, she was my Sunday school teacher. And she was lining up, and not to thank me for the message, but to remind me <laughs> of what I was like. <laughs> God bless her. Uh, but I can tell you, it became an eye-opener for me in understanding the epistle of James. It gave me a new perspective on James's epistle, the half-brother of the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, can you imagine what it's like in that home? I mean, everything was James' fault. I mean, Jesus couldn't do no wrong. I mean, he's perfect, right? It's, it's all James' fault. It's also uplifting to know that James, later on, not only considered it a privilege to call himself the servant, actually the slave of Jesus. But he died a martyr's death for Jesus. And so he begins his letter, chapter 1, verse 1, calling himself bond slave, a doulos of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now listen, if I was half-brother of Jesus, and I'm introducing myself to people who don't know who I am, Man, I would have milked that relationship with Jesus <laughs> for all it's worth. <laughs> Truly, on my letterhead, James, half-brother of Jesus. <laughs> on the seal, a corporate seal, oh, man, James, half-brother of Jesus. Uh, on the door of my, I'll put a sign, James, half-brother of Jesus. Every second sentence when I'm talking to people who don't know who I am, and, and I tell them I'm the very reverend, the most reverend, the, the, the right reverend, and I say, oh, did I tell you that I'm half-brother of Jesus? <laughs> but that's not how James begins the epistle. Verse 1, James, bond, slave of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. What's that mean? What is he saying? He is saying just as a slave obeys the will of his master, I'm honored to obey the will of the Lord Jesus in my life. Just as a slave lives in total submission to his master, I am honored to live all my life in submission to the lordship of Jesus Christ. 
Just as a slave does not have a divided allegiance and look out for his own interest, I am totally sold out to Jesus. Then he goes on to give us the first evidence of faith. What is it? Is it faith in Jesus? Is that unshakable faith in the face of trials? Faith in Jesus is that immovable faith in the tough times of life. Now, there are some people who can be called fair-weather Christians. There are some people who become real Christians when they need something from God. They go to church. They think they do God little favors. Still others think of themselves to be Christians because they're confused. The first evidence that a person who claims to be a Christian, to be a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, the first evidence that that person can show is what they do, not what they say. Anybody can claim anything. And what do they do when tough times hit, when trials come, when testing takes place, when the inexplicable circumstances appears on the horizon and we've done nothing for that, when we face hurt, disappointment, setbacks, and sorrow. How you respond to that situation is the first evidence that your faith is for real. Look at verses 2 and 3. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. The great British philosopher C.S. Lewis, many of you have read his books and you know the Narnia series, and he was going through a tough time in his life, a trial in his life, a really trying time. And somebody came to him and looked at him and was sorry, said, why does God let righteous people suffer? His response was very simple. Why not? They're the only ones who can take it. <laughs> it's like somebody said, genuine faith is like a bag of tea. A bag of tea has its greatest impact when it finds itself in hot water. That's genuine faith. Now, today's Western Christians would not be recognized in the first century of Christianity. You see, when James wrote about this evidence of joy in the midst of trials, Christians were being persecuted. They were tortured for Christ. They were killed. They were put in boiling oil. They were lit on fire for simply believing that Jesus is the Lord. Actually, it was more than that. They didn't only consider it joy. They actually considered it a great honor to be chosen to suffer for Jesus. I mean, imagine this in our day today. Oh, thank you, Lord, that you've given me the privilege to suffer for you. Listen to me. I know this is a foreign language to Western Christians in the 21st century. I know that. And I know some of you probably asking, you know, what does that mean to be joyful in the middle of trial? Does it mean, or James suggesting that we should fake it? Is he suggesting that we just be stoically grin and bear it? Is he suggesting that we be phony about our suffering? Is he saying that we go around and pretend everything is wonderful when that's not? <laughs> Somebody go around and say, oh, 
Praise the Lord, I've got cancer. That's not what he's saying. Goody, I've got a heart attack. Or, it's not wonderful, I lost my job. No, 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 no. God does not want us to display hypocrisy or false emotions. God is not suggesting or wants us to hide behind our Christian masks. God does not want us to pretend that we're not hurting. Not at all. But God wants us to reach the point in our life when we face trials and difficult circumstances and tragedies not of our own making, and at the middle of it we would have unfluttered hearts and stable faith. I know there are people at the first sign of of trouble and the first time of trial and testing times, they may say, oh, God, get me out of this. God, do this. What, what's wrong with me, God? Why? You know, God, are you mad with me? Now, really, I heard people say, oh, God must be mad with me. He must be punishing me for some sins that I committed 20 years ago. No, that's not our God. Can I get a witness? No. God wants those who have genuine faith to look to heaven in the middle of their tough times, in the middle of their difficult circumstances, and say, Lord, certainly this is painful, but I'm completely confident that you are working your purposes out in me. Lord, it might not be making sense to me right now, but I know you will give me joy in the midst of my pain. You're going to give me joy in the midst of it all. Often God uses these trials to change us. Did you hear that? We always want to change the circumstances. I mean, oh, change her, change him, change them, change my boss, change it. Um, have you ever occurred to you that God is using this to change you, to grow you up? <laughs> Often God uses these trials to display our trust in Him in the midst of those tough times. That's why I said earlier, Saving faith has to come first, then daily faith. Because if you try to live by daily faith without saving faith, if you've never experienced the gift of God, of eternal life, if you've never came to Jesus Christ and said, Lord, I am so sorry, I'm a sinner, and I deserve judgment, forgive me. You died on the cross, you shed your blood for me, forgive my sins. That moment, the Bible said, God not only forgives you, but He gives you the gift of eternal life. That's saving faith. That has to come first. If you try to live by faith when you haven't received salvation, it would be like putting the cart in front of the horse going uphill. Now, I don't know how that works. But some people try it. <laughs> I know it doesn't work. So you need to understand that your denomination cannot save you. Your family relationship cannot save you. Your baptism cannot save you. Your church cannot save you. Church membership cannot save you. The only one who can save you is the Lord Jesus Christ who's inviting you to come and believe in Him and put your whole trust in Him. And then, as His Holy Spirit dwells in you, you begin to walk daily in faith and in trust. Once you receive that saving faith, it will follow that in the times of trials, you will become better, not bitter. For those who have saving faith, often the Christian life goes in these four stages. Some of you know what I'm talking about. I've experienced it. You've experienced it. You start when you come to Him, 
and you have the joy of salvation, you're ecstatic, you're so grateful to the Lord for saving you. I remember the night I was saved, I was walking two feet above the ground. I mean, everything looked different. It wasn't different, but it looked different. My life was transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit. And I said, Lord, which is the second step, I want to obey you to the end. I'm going to obey your commands. I want to obey what you tell me. I will do whatever you ask me. And as a result of obedience comes the third stage. Often God blesses us as a result of obedience. Now, the fourth stage is the most dangerous one. Listen to it carefully. Because with the blessing, stage three, comes stage four, testing. (laughs) The testing is to prove that your faith is for real. The testing is for growing you up into maturity. That testing is for God's glory. Don't ever forget (laughs) that with every blessing comes a test. When a blessing comes in that big, beautiful package, inside of that package says test. And the reason I told you this is a dangerous one is because most Christians stumble with the test. What very often happens is folks, when they get into stage three, and they receive the blessing from God, and they're so grateful to God, their life focus becomes the blessing. Their time, their energy, their effort, the blessing. Whether they're working with it, around it, whatever it may be. And so, when testing hits, what happens? They become bamboozled. (laughs) They're actually unprepared. And that is why verse 4 says, perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking in anything. What's that mean? It means don't fight God's perfect working in you. Allow the testing process to run its full course. (laughs) Why? So that you may receive maximum benefits. Listen, If you give up, if I gave up every time there was a test, I would never have graduated. Well, how do you do this? How do you do this? Again, the Scripture gives us the answer, verse 5. By asking God for wisdom in these times of testing. (laughs) Hear me right, please. This is important. If I give you a secret code, and I said, this is a secret code to a safe that is full of resources, that is going to help you in every way, wouldn't you grab it from me? I mean, come on now. (laughs) It's natural, right? Yeah, give it to me. In tough times of life, in the testing times of life, in the trials of life, you can display the evidence of faith. How? By asking for God's wisdom. You see, God's wisdom will give you the strength that you need. God's wisdom will give you the power that you need. God's wisdom will give you the resources, all the resources that will help you pass through the test with flying colors. God's wisdom is like that wide-angle lens that will help you see in the tough times things you could never see otherwise. God's wisdom is that defogger that defogs your lens when you're going through rough, tough times. But listen, God's wisdom does not fall from the sky like rain. No, no. 
James said you have to ask for it. As a matter of fact, there is a qualifier for the way you ask for it. He said you've got to ask for it. You've got to believe that He's going to give it to you. Not may or possibly that He will. That you have faith that when you trust Him to give it to you, He will do it. How do you ask for wisdom in the middle of your crushing circumstances? Verses 6, 7, and 8. But when you ask, (laughs) or when He asks, He must believe and not doubt. When I ask for God to give me wisdom, and I'm fluctuating between want to go it alone and doubting whether He's going to give it to me, and I go from one extreme to the other, I'm constantly fluctuating from one thing to the other, I'm not going to get it. I'm not going to experience it. You get God's wisdom when you have complete confidence that He keeps His Word, that He never go back on His promises. And that is why half-hearted commitment, part-time allegiance will not take you anywhere. And then James goes on to say, in fact, that's why in verses 9, 10, and 11, he explains to us that trials in life is a great leveler of human race. It's a great leveler. The rich go through it, and the poor go through it. Illness and disease show no partiality. It hit the rich and it hit the poor. But when a godly Christian suffers, whether he's rich or poor, and cling to the promises of God, and trust that God will give them wisdom in the middle of it, they'll pass through the test. They both pass through the test. Now, beloved, I don't think it comes as a surprise to many of you, if not all of you, that earthly possessions sometimes cloud our vision. Wealth often claims our affection. But that is why when trials hit, those with earthly possessions must remember that those earthly possessions can be a snare. That's what James is saying. What happens is this. We worry about losing the things we have, the accumulations, and we forget our spiritual priorities. And that is why James said, in times of trial, the rich should glory in what? His riches? No. The rich should glory in the fact that he's got enough money he doesn't have to worry about? No. Or that the rich should glory in the fact that they don't need anybody, they're self-satisfied, they're self-contained? No. He said, when the trials hit, the rich should glory on his or her dependence on God, that he's the only one who gets them through tough times. Material possessions are temporary, but our relationship with the Lord is for eternity. Question, why should we consider it all joy when we go through these trying times? Verse 12. Blessed is the man or the woman who perseveres under trial. Why? Because when they stood the test, they received the crown of life. This crown of life is specifically prepared and be given to people in heaven who have stood the trials of life in the power of Jesus Christ and passed to the other side. 
And you know, these crowns are not given to us so that we say, hey, look at me, boys, I got crowns, you know. No. Because the Bible goes on to say that we're going to have the honor and the privilege of taking these crowns and present them at the feet of Jesus, who is alone worthy to receive all the honor and all of the glory. And I, for one, don't want to go empty-handed. I want to have some crowns to present at His feet. The crown of life. God not only strengthens you through it, not only gives you wisdom to get through it and pass, but He's also going to give you a crown for going through it. <laughs> I said earlier that the early church would look upon our Christianity and they just wondered if we really are talking about the same thing. I want to give you an example from history. In the first 300 years of Christian faith, the church went through tough times. They fought heretics and heresies about the nature of Christ, the divinity of Christ, the fact that Jesus is the only way. What we're going through today is not new. And the church leaders were so concerned that people are being misguided and misled and, and not believing the truth of the authority of the Scripture. So they gathered all the leaders of the churches from all over Egypt, North Africa, Lebanon, Syria, Palestine, all. They see the church was spread everywhere. All of the leaders of all these churches to gather together in a small town called Nasir. It's in modern-day Turkey. From where we got the Nicene Creed. They wrote this to help the church not to fall into the heresies and the, and the false teachings that was going on. But here's what I really want to tell you about that council. There were 300 delegates that have attended the Council of Nasir. 300. Only a dozen of them, 12 of the 300, came with whole bodies. All of the rest of them, all of these Christian leaders, came in tortured, burnt, mutilated for their faith in Jesus Christ. Some came with one eye missing. Some came with one hand missing. Some came with one leg missing. Some came with burnt marks on their bodies. All in attempt to force them not to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. Trials can be your teacher, not your undertaker. Wherever you are, whatever trials you're going through, Whatever stage you're in, whatever you're about to give up or about to give in or about, or you're standing firm and you said, For how long can I stand, O Lord? Remember this count the joy. When you trust His wisdom, He will give you joy in the midst of it all. He will give you victory, ultimate victory. And so put your heart to the Lord and say, Here I am. I need you. Strengthen me. Thank you. 